Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Um, we hope you had a happy Valentine's Day if you were celebrating that. But let's kind of get on going forward and let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We're going to talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name's Matt, and I am joined by my two good friends and co-hosts. I'm Brittany. And I'm CJ. And I'm very excited to bring what I think might be my first uh, episode of the new season <laughs> to the table. So fun fact, it's not actually. It's actually your second of the new, of the, and this is it's still season two. Uh, <laughs> well, yes, not of the season, of the second half. Uh, but also you did the first episode of the year. What was that? Oh, the conservation recap. Yeah. God, that was so long ago. So fun facts, I'm the only one who hasn't done an episode this year. Yeah, Brittany's kind of taken control. Brittany's done too, and this is Matt's second one. My first episode is next week. Mm-hmm. Well, regardless of my mishap, I'm very excited to bring another absolutely fantastic episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast to all you listeners. Now, before we start kind of delving into what we're going to talk about today, CJ and Brittany, how are y'all doing this week? doing well this week uh kind of reeling down from valentine's day fun um we went to cracker barrel and a bookstore um because those are my two couple of my favorite Ooh, romantic listen i was so excited for bookstore fun we like i love reading and books and things so i was really excited because yeah, you're a freaking 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 book lover got them I'm like 80 years old. We do books and puzzles almost every single night. <laughs> I love that for you. Um, this past week, um, myself and my housemate, Jack Cross, also a friend of the podcast, Jack Cross. Hello, Jack Cross. I know you're not going to listen to this. We took a quick little weekend trip down to Texas. So Jack used to work at a zoo down there and went to go visit some of the people who we used to work with and just got a chance to go see some cool stuff. So there's probably some pictures on my Instagram, which will be plugged later from my time in texas so make sure to go check that out matt how are you this week fantastic i just actually was able to go recently to the newport aquarium which was really really fun i haven't been back in a long time so i'm very excited uh to have been able to go out there and just plugging away on work we've recently started working with our collections again getting our team together and we've been finding some pretty cool stuff going on uh, trend wise with birds and moths over the past 20 years. So I'm very excited to see what that kind of shapes into um, and kind of see where this develops. Do you think it'll be in the shape of a moth? No, absolutely not. Understandable. No, it won't, unfortunately. That'd be a cool chart, though, if somehow your moth research ended up having like a moth-like linear regression. That'd be bizarre. Anyways, with that, let's kind of jump out of our little introduction. Welcome back, y'all. And let's kind of hop into our first segment of the episode the creature feature Alrighty, so our creature feature for this week is a creature quite relevant quite in all capital letters relevant to our topic this week so if you're familiar with the bellbow prairie at all you might be familiar with this species of animal 
Um, but before I get into exactly what this species is, for those of our listeners who may not know about the Belbo Prairie, can I get some non-spoilery hints or teasers for this creature feature? I, I wish I could provide something, but unfortunately, my pun game this week has just been a little bit rusty. Yeah, is it a little rusty? It's a little rusty. That's very good. Very good. Come on, Brittany. Come on. Um, You're bumbling around here, Brittany. Do you really have nothing? This is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and your connection has been a little bit patchy, too. Yeah. Rusty, patched, bumbling, unbelievable. <laughs> so our we, creature <laughs> we combined I, for I the know. brunt force of four pawns Brittany and you couldn't provide a single one you couldn't make a beat it's why you all carry the podcast hey we, we've been doing this since day one baby <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, when I'm a year into yeah, Brittany, when you're almost Brittany, when you're two years in a podcast, you'll understand. Okay, you can make puns on the spot. When, I, when I'm all grown you up, make, you can make puns on the rusty patch of a dime. Uh, <laughs> I, but until then, I'm just gonna bumbling be a bumbling band of baboons. No, not a, it's not a baboon. I know it's okay. So our creature feature for this week is the Rusty Patched Bumblebee. So the Rusty Patched Bumblebee is a uh, species of bumblebee native to the east of uh, North America. Uh, its worker bees and male bees have a small rust-colored patch on the middle of their second abdominal segment. Um, this bee was once very commonly distributed throughout the east and upper coast of the Midwest of the United States, but it has declined an estimated 87% of its historic range in recent years. The rusty patch bumblebee was once an excellent pollinator of wildflowers, cranberries, and other important crops, including plum, apple, alfalfa, and onion seeds. It's somewhat similar to other species of bees in its genus. Its genus is Bombus, which is a pretty funny name for a genus of bees. Um, but it's very distinguishable by that signature rusty patch on that abdomen. Like I mentioned, historically, the rusty patch bumblebee was distributed along the east coast of the United States, kind of through the Midwest, um, and basically a, a number of surveys have kind of been done since the beginning of the early 2000s, and it's really not found in many areas except very, very few isolated ranges. Even though it was commonly found for a long time, surveys recently have found very few of this species of the rusty patch bumblebee. In 2017, this species was listed as an endangered species on the, under the U.S. Endangered Species Act, and it's currently listed uh, as critically endangered on the IUCN Red List as of 2015. So it's definitely one of those species that we have to keep an eye out for and protect its environment at all costs. What are our thoughts on the rusty patch bumblebee? I'm a little, I've, I've been really rusty on my bumblebee facts, so I am so happy cj uh -huh. that you shared the rusty bumblebee very good thank me. you thank you that was, it took some time on that one but you got there even though it was just matt's joke exactly but you know very good it was very good you didn't say it was going to be original but <laughs> matt what are your thoughts matt's frozen because <laughs> i'm real frozen right now <laughs> I think it'd be really funny to call him on the phone. So I'm just going to call Matt Valig on my telephone. My Wi-Fi went out. Your Wi-Fi went out? Yeah, 
trying to reconnect right now. Okay. Do you want to share your thoughts on the Rusty Patch Bumblebee? Um, I actually, so when I was with Kane County, one of the sites that we had, and I don't remember the name of it, but there had been decently recent, like I think within the last 10 years, sightings of Rusty Patch Bumblebee at one of their uh, forest preserves. Really? Uh, just so everybody's listening, this is absolutely staying in the podcast. Um, Matt is finally rejoining the call. His internet's back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it was really, really cool because that was where I ended up finding out about the Rusty Patch Bumblebee and like kind of ex- like looking at the way that like forest preserves, even like local forest preserves kind of interact with native flora and fauna is really, really important and overlooked. You know, when we look at places of hotbeds of biodiversity, you're never really thinking of your local forest preserve. You're always kind of thinking of the national parks, Grand Tetons, you know, Yosemite, places like that. But it's like in your own backyard, you know, right outside, sometimes your rear view window that you can happen upon some really incredibly rare or impressive species. And so like learning that about the the location of the rusty patch bumblebee it was a pretty pretty solid thing and I, I remember that being a really cool moment in a really really cool job that i'm very glad i took yeah i love that and we're going to get more into some of the ecological history of the of where the rusty patch bumblebee can exist but for now let's jump into our current events <music> All right. Well, I do request that um, Australian CJ be present for this current event. Okay. No worries, mate. I'm here. Excellent. Ahoy. Excellent. Welcome. Ahoy no, there, ahoy, mate. We say good day. <laughs> ahoy. No. <laughs> oh, I love you guys. <laughs> All right, so my for the current event for this week, the title reads Tracking Echidna Poo Unearths the Largest Ever Sighting of the Elusive Species Across Australia. And so the article talks about how citizen scientists have helped research um, echidnas and through their poop. And they've actually discovered that echidnas are more in urban areas than what they had originally thought so originally when in australia when animals that are in more of like the urban areas are usually ring-tailed possums or brush turkeys things like that but by identifying this echidna poop they've realized that echidnas are actually a lot in urban areas and the reason why this is so important is because now that they've realized that echidnas are more in urban areas, it it makes it so that echidnas should be actually taken more into consideration when establishing biodiversity policies in their cities. And so um, I just really liked this current event because it just shows how important citizen science really is and how much just any like every single person can make an impact 
on conservation and on the wildlife that's around them. Um, what are your all thoughts on echidna poop tracking? That's a really beautiful current event there. You, you shared all about citizen science, and it's 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 utterly fascinating when we see things like regular people in Australia coming together to work to save echidnas. Echidnas are one of the last remaining extant monotremes, which means they're egg-laying mammals, and they are just truly gorgeous species of animals. So seeing that their environmental welfare is being taken into account when looking at, you know, uh, you know, human building codes and things like that and, you know, ecological surveys, it's it's truly fascinating. Uh, I had a conversation not too long ago with a good mate of the pod, uh, Freya McGregor, who told us all about uh, some echidnas in her backyard, her family backyard down in Australia. So, you know, it's really beautiful to see kind of some stories from friends of the podcast and some current events all about echidnas. I think the abilities and the hugely diverse implementations of citizen science within just society are one of maybe our most powerful tools in regards to inquiry. Uh, you know, whenever I think about citizen science, the first thing that I think of as a birder is eBird and kind of just cataloging, you know, or going to iNaturalist even and just reporting whatever you find, whenever you find it, just as pure census data. And that's all really good and well. But it doesn't even tip the scales you know it's not even there's a whole iceberg under the water of what citizen science can be and so looking at community activists and community scientists and ecologists and all the work that they're able to do with these really really wildly creative citizen science initiatives like this one too it's one of the most powerful tools we might have in our bag and not only getting massive amounts of data with minimal minimal monetary output which is a big you know source of contention right now as science costs money and time costs money and scientists have to use both money and time which is more money it's a lot of it's money squared essentially but also it's one of our most powerful tools in engaging citizens with science which is such a huge aspect of what we're trying to do and allowing people into the realm of scientific inquiry in whatever way they can and want to, you know, as an opt-in measure, you know, it's completely, completely individually based on whether you do this or not. You're not being forced to track a kid in a poop. You know, that's not, it's not, it's not a, it's not a dictatorship, but democratically allowing people to opt into science in ways that they might never have been able to without citizen science is such a hugely powerful tool with connecting those with the world outside them. Yeah, I, I echo literally everything yeah. I said. There, I don't um, think there's a way to be to have stated that more beautifully. Yeah, truly. And you know, I I'm just looking at like some of the research that I was doing on our creature feature, the Rusty Patch Bumblebee. Um, the article that I had pulled up was from the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and literally the map distribution of current populations for the rusty patch bumblebee like i said critically endangered globally the points on the map are literally records since 2012 as found by citizen science reports that's how we know where species like this exist that's how we know where the echidnas are through citizen science it's such a massive part of science that people don't even realize and one thing that you said matt that i really loved is that it's one of the easiest way to 
voluntarily get people accessible science. And the fact that it's being used to help such a really cool species like the echidna is amazing. Yeah, I think the level understanding that we're beginning to, that at least I'm affiliating myself with, with scientists and civilian science just through this podcast um, and investigating all that has been such a beautiful thing. And I'm very excited to uh, take, you know, taking this and maybe even making it another jumping off point. I know we did an episode on citizen science before, but like that's a huge, huge initiative. And the ability to spread that is a, such a cool thing. I think that's like something that I didn't realize when when I said yes to to become a co-host, how much of an impact that we are the ability of an impact that we're able to have on these things. Right. Because I feel like if it hadn't been if the idea of citizen science hadn't been introduced to me back in high school, how would you know about it? How you know, like where you wouldn't, would where, right? right, like where would that would have been introduced? And it's. I think it's something that's so cool that I think about with our podcast is that that's something that we get to talk about and why I thought this specific article was so important to talk about because it's just bringing awareness that you don't need a degree to do science. You don't need a degree to be connected to the world and the environment and wildlife around you because it's all around us. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, I, I was going to add something, but no, that's that's it, folks. I think our mutual sentiment for citizen science, I think I'm not even, I'm just going to say this outright with between the three of us, it grows stronger every day. Our love for citizen science mm -hmm. and the power that it brings to communities. So um, if you nature lover listening are not already involved in citizen science projects, literally, it's free and easy. So mm -hmm. <laughs> go participate. Yeah. It's free, easy, and I would also argue a third F, and that's fun. Um, I'm going to add never, an A in there. It's accessible. Oh, it, it really is. And that's the it's thing. It's never been easier to be a scientist than it no, is right now. No, it's never. It, you're, you're exactly right. We're breaking a stigma about conservation and making conservation not relegated towards scientists. We're making conservation a human baseline. And by converting that from something locked behind a university to something that is just the standard everyday norm is huge. There is no stating how important that is. And the accessibility is a beautiful thing. It really is. Another thing that's really accessible is this podcast. And now we're going to talk and take this podcast in a new direction. And that's new for this episode. We're going to head to the main topic now. I love that. You know what? Every time I fall, I get right back up. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, it's accurate. It's like that one. Was, who, who did the song? It was like, if you fall, I will catch you and be way. Time after time. Cindy Lauper. Time um, after time. I had to get Very to that, that part of the song before I could figure out who. So as mentioned earlier, today we're going to be talking about the Bell Bowl Prairie. And that's not going to be the full topic of the episode. I do want to have a bit of a roundtable discussion with my good friends and co-hosts. I'm very excited 
to hear everyone's thoughts and feelings. But in order to get into that, I do think it's important to break down what's going on with the Bell Bull Prairie, especially for those of our good friends and listeners who uh, don't exactly know what we're talking about. Um, we've done a couple regional things on the podcast before. We've done some Wild City episodes. Wild Chicago is one of my favorites at this point. And there's no shortage of local opinions and knowledge that we have that we're very excited to share with y'all. And for me, one of those topics is the whole entire debacle, I would say, that is currently surrounding the Bell Bull Prairie. Just a little bit of context, right? So the Bell Bull Prairie is a very small remnant gravel prairie located in Rockford, Illinois. So it's in like the northern western kind of corner of the state of Illinois. So in, uh, I believe it's Winnebago County, if that helps. And some context of prairies in general is that prairies are not doing well. If you look statistically, which ecosystems have the lowest percentage of ancestral type left, prairies are either at the actual bottom of that barrel or they are very, very close to that. And the reasoning being is that prairies are very characterized by um, pretty moderate temperatures. You know, there's seasonality, but it's not as uh, highly, it's not as harsh as, say, if you were to go to Siberia or something like that. Um, and they became very good places for pumping in nutrients and performing agricultural uh, activities, which is why when you go to the Midwest, which used to have such remnant beauty like prairies and forests and streams and bogs, you know, a lot of people don't know that Chicago ancestrally was a swamp. And the same thing with the northwestern tip of Ohio used to be the Great Black Swamp, which is all almost now completely comprised of agricultural lands. And prairies have been especially hit very hard due to their kind of flatter nature, and they just lended themselves really well towards opportunistic agriculture. It's a very, very standard example of well, what people call the tragedy of the commons, where you, you got to the prairies and there was this whole expanse of land. And rather than kind of realizing the natural beauty that it held, it was viewed as a commodity. And it was overtaken really, really quickly to the point now that in the state of Illinois, we have less than one hundredth of one percent. So less than 0.01 percent of prairie that remains in the state of Illinois. And I just want to add quick there, Matt, like that's even more shocking when you take into account the fact that Illinois used to be like 98% prairie. Mm -hmm. It is unfathomable what Illinois used to look like before, especially white human settlement, if we're being completely honest. Um, and the implementation of agricultural and livestock norms and practices. And that's, that's, that's a whole episode on its own. But one of the last places where you can actually go to see this really ancestral prairie is the Bell Bull Prairie. Um, gravel prairies are an especially very, very rare prairie. And they're characterized by certain topography. Um, they're usually kind of on hill faces. They're not really flat. To be completely honest, they're more of like a topographical gradient style prairie, but they're characterized by their really uncompacted sandy soils. And 
at Bell Bowl especially, you had this really sandy, gravelly, uncompacted prairie that doesn't have as much vegetation you'd expect just because it's harder for stuff to take root um, in that really loose soil. And this is actually why the rusty patch bumblebee has become synonymous with gravel prairies is because what they will do is the queens will actually overwinter in the soil. And when you have too compactive soil, these the species cannot overwinter, which queens overwintering is necessary to their survival, which is why they're so intimately tied to it um, and is the reason that we see such low prominence of both this federally endangered bee species as well as what should be considered this federally endangered ecosystem. Now, the story of the Bell Bull Prairie isn't just how important of an ecological landscape it is, not only to remaining affiliated with our past as a species and what prairies ancestrally were, but it's also really important ecologically to all those species. You know, you've got the rusty patch bumblebee, but you've also got stuff like the upland sandpiper, the loggerhead shrike. You know, there's actually, I believe, about 10 federally or state threatened and endangered species that call just the Bell Bull Prairie home. And it's just a little chunk of prairie that is currently in the midst of a development war. And that's what I kind of wanted to talk about today. So essentially what's been going on, and you might have seen it on my story or even the Birdie Bunches story uh, for about the past year, but in 2018, there was a proposed uh, development by the Rockford International Airport to look into destroying most of the Bell Bull Prairie for development of a road that would connect to the um, airport. And this was to be then expanded on further in another direction. Um, and all of this is a big future plan that they have. And then in 2019, after doing all this testing and their own inner airport testing, um, this environmental assessment, they can do they finished their environmental assessment and found no significant impact and decided to go forward with this destruction of this prairie now this is where the first cog in the machine kind of falls into place a little bit because this was an environmental impact assessment done by the private entity that wants to do the development which i'm not going to make any claims about them or anything like that but i will say that most of the times when you look at these environmental assessments, they should be done by an outsourced organization, a group, something like that. Just for pure taking away from any potential bias that there might be. And it only bears more credence to the fact that then once they come up with this finding of no significant impact, they did not tell the management group of the Prairie, the Natural Land Institute, that there was a draft or a finalized environmental assessment. So the people who oversee this prairie had no idea that this was going on. Um, and that kind of sets the ground for all of the conflict that's been going on since then. Come over to 2021 in the summer, construction starts and construction really doesn't start very quickly because there's a lot of other stuff that has to go on. Um, uh, you have to figure out how to retain stormwater as these kind of projects are going on and all this kind of stuff that really sets the ground before paving happens. 
but they do get a little bit going on in access road construction. But in August, residents notice all this going on and they notify the people who run the Department of Natural Resources, as well as that Natural Land Institute who run the prairie. And so what happens then is surveys from these environmental advocacy groups come out and that's when they find the rusty patch bumblebee on their grounds, which really throws development in a whirlwind because the rusty patch bumblebee is a federally protected endangered species. And the conflict surrounding endangered species and human development doesn't need to be rehashed. We have an episode about it. Go listen to back to, I believe, episode either two or three, the Endangered Species Act, which delves a lot more into that. But essentially, now there's this conflict surrounding. There's these local grounds of this endangered bee that is important to this bee. And that further sets the tone for what's going on now. So then we come to a bunch of advocacy groups who start talking to the press, you know, talking to lawmakers. People were coming to Governor Pritzker about, keep in mind, two years after the original plan starts making heat, you know. Uh, these are things that could have been done from the start and are now being put on the back burner because nobody told anybody that this was going on. And this is kind of what we're going to come back to as well. So the public starts learning about this. They start spreading all the words. There's actually a call to action day um, in the late fall of 2021. Advocacy starts going really, really hardcore. And the airport board, under mounting pressure, decides to cancel their public meetings and halt the destruction of the prairie until November 1st. And then immediately, Fish and Wildlife Service is kind of taken into play. So November 1st doesn't really become a viable date. There needs to be a lot more studied and determined to how this prairie interacts with local endangered fauna. So going through November, there's a lot of, this was a really particularly volatile month where it was back and forth of things being pushed back and pushback of them being pushed back. And there was a lot of consultation letters between aviation groups and conservationists. And on November 19th, happy birthday to me, um, the Nan Natural Land Institute files a 60-day notice of violations to the Endangered Species Act to federal agencies. So this is the first time that there's been an application to a federal board that oversees endangered species populations. December comes around and things go into a lull for a little bit, but they're kind of picking back up again is why I wanted to talk about it. Because currently, construction is slated to begin March 1st. Um, this is a date that they have planned, which when this episode releases should be in a week, which is really, really quick turnaround, especially given that four or five months ago, an appeals for endangering endangered species is released. There's been some volatile stuff in between that where state's attorneys are filing things and the airport essentially has decided that they're not going to listen to anyone and they're just going to go ahead with it. Um, and it's all become a really volatile scenario, partially because there was no context given to the people who technically ran this land to, for two years. Um, they found out on the back burner, but another big part of it being that there is already a road that does not destroy the prairie that just borders it. 
like this prairie is bordered by this road that is used to get to the Rockford International Airport. And the goal is to make another road that plows straight through this prairie, destroys most of it. It's a very small prairie and gets a slightly more direct path to the airport with their goal of then expanding outward. But part of the problem becoming then that they haven't gotten any approval or environmental action or of environmental assessments done of their further expansion. So their goal is to pave through everything now, ask questions later. That has been the whole proposed plan this whole way going through is do first, ask later. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission, which kind of leads me, you know, we have the stage set for all of this conflict going on and conservationists have been sounding off and a lot of different podcasts or radio shows that come out of Illinois in particular have been really, really staunch advocates for saving the Bell, Pro Bell, saving the Bell Bull Prairie. And that's kind of where I wanted to open it up to kind of just talk about the process, you know, what is going on, uh, other areas of things like that, other stories that might be reminiscent of it, because I do think the concept of weighing human development and environmental preservation is a particularly important one in a ever-growing population and ever-growing world. And I would like to get everyone's thoughts on that and just kind of have a big roundtable discussion. You know, you bring up a really good point with the comparison between human development and ecological preservation. And it's a very fine line to walk, right? Because the human population is ever-growing and at no point does anyone ever want to say like, no, we should stop progressing as people, like as a species, you know, there's an ever growing population and we want everybody to, you know, be able to thrive with all of their resources and needs met. But logistically, given our current system, that cannot happen without more ecological destruction happening. So fights like against the destruction of the Belbow Prairie are so necessary because as you outlined, there are solutions to the problem that don't involve destroying such necessary habitat and such historic habitat. Gravel prairies or prairies in general in the state of Illinois are so, so, so significant. Illinois used to be what, 98% prairie and 2% marsh? And now I think we're down to like a fiftieth percent marsh and a hundredth percent prairie or something like that. Yeah, it's ridiculous, and it's a very, very difficult line to walk because there's no right answer. Like every side sees their side as correct and justfully so, but as nature lovers, we want and are going to advocate for the preservation of such important habitat. What is really crazy is you touched upon that there are alternatives. And last fall, um, when it seemed like there was headway being made, because there was a lot of headway being made in communications with the airport that just suddenly just dropped, like dropped out of the sky, and it made no sense. But there was a proposed counter plan that got both both sides done 
And what is crazy is that it is so incredibly feasible. Like this isn't one of those rock in a hard place scenarios. It feels like there's a very justifiable and viable alternative that is just, I don't know if it's out of pure convenience or what, but just not being heard or evaluated or looked into. And it's so crazy that in this particular instance, it almost feels like a scenario where it's like, well, I'll show you kind of thing. And more of like a power game flex than anything else. This prairie is not a huge prairie. It's not like they're trying to preserve something the size of like midday win. Um, for those who um, also live in the Chicagoland area, you might know midday win national tall grass prairie. Yeah, it's a it's one of our state parks here in Illinois, and it's mm-hmm. I think I believe it's the largest standing prairie in the state. In is the state, true? yeah. Um, which we all, by the way, have experience visiting together. It was very fun too. It was a very fun day. We um, did. We saw harriers there. We did. That was about all we saw bird wise, and then went back. Bison. That is true. Oh, yeah, they do. They have a herd of bison they, there. They have a herd of bison. Yeah, it was very sick. And this is what I'm talking about, though. Look at how enamored we are with the concept of a prairie. I think something that CJ also said and talked about as us as nature lovers. And of course, we're going to be there to advocate for that. And I think that bit is so important just in general for things that we care about because they don't have voices, right? The prairie doesn't have a voice. We have to be that voice. And so having conversations like this is so important for multiple different reasons. One is that... us getting to talk about it on our platform is something that someone now gets to listen to that may not have heard about it. You bringing this up, I've never heard about this, so I am learning. And it's something that now I care about. And then there's that second idea that you guys both talked about with the idea of there is a solution where everybody wins. And it's very frustrating that doesn't that's that's not just the answer right like but again it brings back to the point where we all have to care enough to then speak up because now we're speaking up but now there needs to be some type of action to go with it whether that's petitions or with your vote or whatever like there's ways that we're talking about citizen science earlier but just being a citizen caring about conservation in this type of way is also important and so i guess i'm kind of just echoing what you both said but i it's it's very important and i think you guys both brought up amazing points yeah thanks Brittany. that i mean i appreciate you saying that another thing i'd actually like to add and i would love to hear you know your comments on this as well from both of you is this is very reminiscent of the general iron uh, situation from late last year, still going on to this year. So just kind of a quick recap of this situation. On the south side of Chicago, a general iron processing plant, I don't exactly know what it's called. They want to move their steel mill, basically like an iron processing plant to the south side, which would create a ton of pollution in the south side. And it is being fought against by the community because practically is just environmental racism right and i'm curious as to what the situation is with the bellwell prairie maybe matt you know this maybe you don't this one i'll admit doesn't seem to be as in line with that just because 
Rockford's uh, a bit more of like a, a farming community. It's not a hugely urban swatch in that area. And the location of the airport, if I'm not mistaken, is pretty secluded, sure. um, which is why that prairie remains. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't seem to be as in line with that one. I think it's more. I mean, could it be argued that it's a low income area? That would be something that would be worth investigating. Um, Again, I, I don't know the specifics I... of the, the demographics of Rockford. That's not yeah. what CJ on the podcast is saying. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is destroying this prairie has an impact on the community, whether it's environmental racism or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, The community absolutely. surrounding it is impacted. Whether it's the construction of the parking lot, whether it's, you know, the lack of wildlife that they see in their community or the lack of pollinators that come to their yards to pollinate their herbs. If it's a, if it's a farming community, which a lot of the far out counties from Chicago are farming communities. They need those pollinators. And the prairie is a big home to them. We talked about the rusty patch bumblebee. So I'm really curious as to how this is going to impact the people as opposed to, we, we talk about wildlife all the time, but I'm really curious as how this is actually impacting human beings and giving us all another reason to stand for the Belbo Prairie. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest part of the problem is that right now, I don't know if anyone knows. I think with such a small patch of prairie, because like I said, this is not, this is not midday when this is not even Springbrook Prairie Forest Preserve. This is like, this is tiny. It is tiny. There's just any environmental assessments that have been done really thus far have been mostly done by the airport and those who desperately want to expand that airport which then creates the problem of what is the truth and what is what is reality and all becomes mired and muddled yeah. because it's coming from a non non-biased group it's coming from a biased group yeah <laughs> something that i'm very passionate about discussing especially in terms of community organizing right we talk about community organizing we talk about the difference that people can make within conservation. And it's hard for a lot of people like myself. When I was in high school, it was hard for me to understand why people wouldn't take action or why certain people made certain decisions that would negatively affect conservation. But one, it's don't know. Two, it's I got bigger problems. Like, I'm worried about getting food on my table. I can't worry about a bumblebee. This is a real thing. You know, uh, as much as I am an avid advocate for the Belbo Prairie and preserving it in any way that we possibly can, and in our blog post for this week and on our Instagram, we are going to be linking all the petitions you can sign in the next week. It's a difficult situation, but the most that we can do is advocate for why it's important and offer solutions. But at the end of the day, it's up to the community to create their own solution because we don't know what's best for them. We don't live there. But yeah. I, I think it's something that I know has been brought up in other in other conversations, though, like talking about when we talk about hunting and things like that. Like we can we can sit here comfortably yeah, and not have exactly to worry it. about the, the issues that are facing those communities because we're not in those situations. And I think that's a larger conversation that I think would be 
could be a whole episode. That's definitely something we'll circle back to. That's a thousand yeah. percent thing we'll circle back to. But I will say that based off of the information that Matt has shared, it doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like big corporate nonsense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doing what they do. Um <laughs> to put it just putting it in No, nice and again, that's super duper valid. I'm just trying to like I'm it's not Devil advocate, 100%. It's not even devil's advocate. It's more just like we have to take both things into consideration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. And, and not being from that community, I can only advocate mm -hmm. partially. Yeah, 100%. And it's like I said, our job as podcasters, as nature lovers, as conservation educators is to do that very that, right? Mm -hmm. To educate. Mm -hmm. That's why this podcast is coming out at this exact time for all of you to go out, sign petitions, do whatever you can to advocate for our friends at the Bevel Prairie. I think what is particularly damning about this whole scenario is it, it does seem like the community has already taken like a staunch stance for the preservation of like the Rusty Patch Bumblebee. Um, they had a whole community day and I forget what day it was last year. But there was like a rusty patched bumblebee day. And like this is something that has drawn a lot of ire from the community. And it's that ire that has halted so far what's been going on. Uh, you know, everything was going on under their noses. The the assessment was being done without telling the people who manage that land and have been managed that land for so long. And it was the people who live and butt up to the prairie. It was the people who spend their time there just recreationally and just existing in that space who noticed that all of a sudden there was like construction going on in development and they were the ones to notify the people who run the land. Like this was, this was done from under the rug kind of thing. I don't know if that's a phrase it could be, I don't know, but it, it's like every step of the way, it has been opposed by some portion of the community, be it the people who run the land or the people who live next to the land or the people who spend their time there. And it's like, at, at what point as an airport developer, do you realize this is something important to those there? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a question I could never answer because I don't, I don't know what's going on in their heads. Like usually yeah. I can see at least merit, but the paving of a road when another road <laughs> already exists is so it's, it's asinine. It truly is. It flirts with disaster is what it comes down to. No, no. <laughs> and I, I try my best to be as objective as possible, but that, this yeah, is... I think that's what we're all trying to do here is we're trying yeah. to see it objectively. But even at the end of the day, the objective answer lies with preserving mm -hmm. this small patch of prairie and the rusty patch bumblebee. What you said there, when you when you said like this community came around the rusty patch bumblebee, I like actively smiled. And I don't actively smile very often a lot these days, folks. But I actively smiled when you said that because it just reminded me of all the amazing conservation projects that are happening globally that use a focal animal as the advocate we talk about palm oil. We talk about the palm oil crisis. And who's the face of that? It's the orangutan. We talk about poaching. Who's the face of poaching? It's the elephant. We talk about 
endangered species for a long time the face of endangered species was the giant panda and now we're talking about saving tiny patches of prairie and their amazing significance to communities and how all of these diverse groups of people are coming together to save this one little patch of ground around a single bumblebee and i don't know if you can hear how happy that makes me but it's beautiful in the most simple way. People coming together for a common purpose to better their community. It's the best thing that can happen. And as members of a different community, right? Like I live in the city of Chicago. My community is very different from that of Rockford. But everyone I know within the Chicago conservation community is also actively advocating and speaking aloud mm -hmm. with that community fighting for the rusty patch bumblebee and the Belleville prairie it's fascinating how much of a precedent the existence of a federally endangered bee has setting future tones for the way conservation is looked at in america because the biggest story about this story in particular has been just the particular continued undercutting of what's going on and the undermining and the the continued persistence to skirt around what is a federally acknowledged law. The Endangered Species Act is law. And if a species is listed as federally endangered, like that's like a no-go zone. Like that's like a it is so hard for a species to get on the endangered species list. It is equally incredibly easy for a species to come off the Endangered Species Act, usually because that opens the doors for more development and such around that that could potentially put that species at risk. That's usually why that happens. In my lifetime, and especially in my own, not backyard, but near close to backyard, I have never seen a more blatant attempt at just purely undermining the power that the Endangered Species Act has in federal conservation and the precedent that could be set by the allowance to just skirt that ruling is, in my opinion, a hugely dangerous one, too, and something that I, I don't want to see where it goes, because if this yeah. had happened before Monty and Rose came around, Monty and oh, Rose true. were Monty and Rose are these two really special piping plovers that were the first piping plovers on the beaches of Chicago in over 50 years, which is a huge landmark. And it is a federally endangered species as well as the rusty patch bumblebee is. And the biggest story surrounding like the start of their establishment, they've been in that, that beach in Northern Chicago, Northern East Chicago for about four years now. They've continually come back to the same spot. It's a good breeding location. But the first couple of years as they were establishing that as a breeding location, there was actually supposed to be a music festival, literal like almost feet down the beach from where their nest was, which would have been wildly and massively destructive for just their presence in that locale. And I struggle to imagine what could have been because there was this big fight 
between conservationists and this music festival too. And the guy who ran the music festival was like, oh, do we stop at every butterfly? Like that's a direct quote that comes from that. And I truly almost don't want to know what could have happened if the precedent of a potential undermining of the Rusty Patch Bumblebee conservation would have come before Monty and Rose. Because those two are Chicago icons. They are all over the Midwest renowned by people who just come to see just those two birds and all over the state of Illinois, especially. And their presence as community backbones in the city of Chicago could have never existed if the precedent that is being set right now in Rockford at that airport comes before their attempted establishment of a location. And that is something that I think is important going forward for people to understand about how government and politics manifest themselves. I think that Monty and Rose provides, I guess, maybe a little glimmer of hope that I would hope that the community is able to gather around the the rusty patch bumblebee, like and all of the other animals that CJ even listed, like like people have been able to gather around so much and to try to make an impact so that that festival didn't didn't get to set up there and and have that harmful impact it gives me some hope that i that i hope that this corporation isn't able to be stopped if there if there's that big of a rally behind this bumblebee because like you were saying matt that community really has kind of gathered around and ha had those things so it, it provides i feel like a small glimmer of hope and that can just be me wanting to be super optimistic but i really truly hope that it happens because it is so impactful and it does set a precedent because what happens to the next monty and rose if this does go through yeah i do think that's why it's so hugely important to take every single success every single day and to apply it because sometimes as conservationists when we look at the world around us and what's going on and we look with an objective lens at all the inner workings of socioeconomics and geography and just all those different areas colliding into one manifestation that being really climate change to be honest um it looks glum as hell like as a 23 year old hearing the consistent news reports and publishings and everything about what the next 50 years hold for us is pretty screwed up and i think it's important and the way like the mindset that you hold Brittany, is such a hugely important one and one that needs to be control seed control veed over the rest of society because I know so many who have already gone within the workings of losing hope. Like, I'm not going to change anything. I don't care. And it's like one person can't take a million steps, but a million people taking one step each can take a million steps. And that relies on all of us. The ability to continue to forge forward with any positive reinforcement that comes from conservation and successes like Monty and Rose 
is a hugely important lens to be using in regarding conservation action. I say this every time we do an episode like this. Every single time we do an episode like this, I always say one thing that was instilled in us very young, all three of us, is the idea of do one thing. If every one of us, every single one of us, just did one small thing to make a difference, a big difference would be made. And I think that's especially true in the case of the Belbo Prairie. I can personally attest to probably at least 50 to 100 people who I know personally who have like actively signed petitions, actively gone to community meetings, actively spoken up for the protection of the Belbow Prairie. And I've done those same things. And just a few people doing those small things and inspiring others to do those small things. And us on this podcast speaking about the significance of the Belbow Prairie and the beautiful Rusty Patch Bumblebee. We have hopefully inspired you to take action. I personally always like ending on a positive note. I think leaving a conversation better than you found it is a I love that. much more inspiring way to look at things, I think. And it's what continues my development and progress forward. But is there anything else either of you would like to add to this topic before we kind of head into closing this episode up? I don't think so. I, I think the last thing I'm going to add is just a thank you to you, Matt, because for bringing this com this topic and conversation up, because I think it tied in very beautifully to what we're talking about, um, like citizen sciences and how everybody, every like everybody can do it. And it's just one more thing that everybody can rally around and make a difference when it comes to conservation. So. I also think it really ties around what we talked about just roughly like a month back with the conservation consumerism, where where we put our time and effort is just as important as where we put our money. Yeah. If you can advocate via you know money, which you know I can't, but if you can, then that you could do that to support the Belva Prairie, mm -hmm. or you can take small actions in terms of like signing petitions and volunteering your time and attending community meetings. Call representatives. That's a big one right now. Pritzker's yeah. taking talks on that currently. He's been very instrumental in pushing things back as they have been pushed back. Because if there had been no pushback, we wouldn't even been talking about Bell Bull Prey right now. It would have been plowed last year. Um, but to end on a positive note. Um... <laughs> yeah, well, I'd say that's positive. It's still going. <laughs> uh, on a positive note. Um, Matt, bring us home. Country road. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so thank you to everyone for listening to this kind of what could be described as rambling, but I think really important rambling that deserves to be discussed in a larger platform. I think one of the biggest tools that we have in conservation is the spread of knowledge and the spread of accessible knowledge and the spread of discourse and the spread of all these things that make it so important and make it so easy for environmentalists and naturalists and nature lovers to rally around 
all these different species, whether they be charismatic megafauna or in this case, in the rusty patch bumblebee, not. Thank you for giving us that platform to talk about that and for just hanging with us and hopefully getting inspired to, even if it doesn't relate to the rusty patch bumblebee doing one, one good thing. And so we'll be interacting uh, on social media a lot surrounding this topic because like i said um at least at the time of recording this the proposed date for construction is a week away um and like i said that's been pushed a lot before i wouldn't be surprised if it happens again just because there's still a lot that's left to be unsaid but currently that's the proposed plan so we'll be interacting a lot we'll be sharing a lot of ways to get engaged whether it's phoning up Pritzker's office, or if it's signing petitions or contacting representatives, all those things are in fair game right now and widely appreciated as well. And so um, thank you for giving us the opportunity to spread those materials and to go find those materials. Definitely check out the Birdie Watch podcast on Instagram. And I'm sure each of us individually be sharing stuff as well. For me, you'll be able to find that at Matt Valiga on Instagram. That's M-A-T-T-V as in Victor, A-L-I-G-A. And I definitely, I know there's one radio show in particular that I share very often who shares updates and has a lot of advocacy in the Belleville Prairie arena. And so I'll be definitely sharing that stuff as it comes up on my stories. So you should definitely go check that out. Um, CJ and Brittany, where can people uh, find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany Bunch, T H E B is in boy, R I T T A N Y underscore B is in birdie, U N C H. Um, I just post kind of irregularly. I've been posting more about some animals that make me happy and just about fun life updates. Love that. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at cj.greco, that's cj.greco. As I mentioned earlier, took a trip to Texas last week. Come check it out. Matt, where can we all be found? Unless you already said that and I wasn't paying attention. I did, but you can definitely find all of us and all the materials that we're sharing at the Birdie Bunch podcast on Instagram, as well as going and checking out our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. There's a lot of materials about us as individuals out there. Um, if you're kind of new to the podcast, um, but you can also find the episodes themselves, or you can find materials that we use for research if you would like to go further investigate stuff. Um, you can also submit different ideas that you have for episodes that you'd like to see all through that website. Pretty freaking spanking lit. And another thing that you can find on that website ends up being our merch store and our Patreon. If you're considering supporting us, uh, that tab would definitely be the way to do so. That merch store is definitely on there. The link is right on that page. And then the Patreon as well. Thank you to Gabe Anderley for being a continued patron and supporting us through Patreon. We really, really do appreciate it. And that's the kind of thing that keeps us going around. But I understand if you can't financially support us. I know a lot of people who I know who listen to the podcast are in college. And one thing I know is that that's not a time of life with a lot of disposable income. And so... If you would like to support us and support the messaging of the Bell Bull Prairie in a way that's not financial, definitely share this podcast with a friend. It takes two seconds. 
Um, we just want as many people to know about this as possible. And I will be honest, Rusty Patch Bumblebee discourse doesn't spread a lot through general society. It's, you know, we're all kind of coming together and being this little workhorse that spreads the word and spreads the news about this really important swatch of land. You can also, if you would like, um, write a review. We will read any five-star reviews out on the podcast, but literally any information or anything that you want to say about the way this podcast works, absolutely go ahead and say it. We're always welcome and open to any ideas, critiques, anything, and we want to continue to push forward the best experience for you all listening to this podcast. I think that wraps everything up that I was meant to say. Is there anything else anyone can think of before we head out? Nah. Mm -hmm. Nope. Have a good week, folks. Mm -hmm. See you in two. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Birdie Bunch podcast, everyone, especially with such an important topic of conversation at hand today. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.